Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. And I'm Avin Shannon. I'm a guest today. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, the Book of Judges. And we have our friend Avram with us. This is actually a really fascinating and important book that sometimes gets overlooked and sometimes people get a little confused about what's going on. There's some really important things that help us to understand God's plan and the role of kings and leadership in helping point people to God. Quite frankly, when you just read the book of Judges start to finish, you can walk away with a pretty sour taste in your mouth. There are some really violent, uh, terrible things that are going on here. And Avram, you pointed out that one of the purposes for this book is to show the people of Israel the need for something. Yes. Yeah, so, so it's it's part of the whole idea behind Judges explicitly is to illustrate why Israel needs a king. That's it. It's very, I think it's explicit in the text itself. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Can you see, can you see some corollary to our day, that idea of when you lack leadership, then people end up just doing whatever is right in their own eyes. And, and they do it feeling justified in what they're doing, and it creates a pretty chaotic society. Chaotic is a really good word to describe what we see in the book of Judges. I mean, it's just, I mean, the whole thing is structured in this way to actually illustrate the point that the author and editor of Judges wants is that without this kind of sort of proper divine authority, things are just going to get crazy. Yeah. And what's fascinating about the scriptures is that this is a big question that seems to dominate a lot of the biblical narrative. Who is going to be the king? How will people respond? This is a really big question, even in the Book of Mormon, from the very beginning. Who's going to be the leader, right? Nephi and his brothers seem to have a bit of conflict. Who's going to be the king? And ultimately, the main question is, who is the king? And will people be willing to put themselves into alignment to the real king? Because the earthly king is simply supposed to be God's representative, who is the real king. So we'll see this going on here, how the people struggle to find and follow the real king. Not just here in Judges, but even throughout the Old Testament, even into the Book of Mormon. Which, it's fascinating, if you look at that Book of Mormon um, pattern, we start with a whole line of kings among the Nephites and the Lamanites. You get to Mosiah 29 with King Mosiah, and he's clearly hearkening back to the Old Testament when he's saying, you know, we need to make an adjustment in our form of government. And, and I think it's intriguing there because where it's a little bit different from um, our book of Judges here in the Bible is it is a form of government. Judges is more like a, uh, I mean, they're, they're basically tribal chieftains uh, working through these things. So, again, Mosiah II is very clearly sort of building on, working through with this biblical um, example, but where we have sort of almost, I mean, called charismatic leadership in the judges in, in the book of Judges, Mosiah's judges are very institutional. They're, they're, again, they're a form of government as opposed to, again, sort of 
Charis- uh, charismatic military yeah, leader. Divinely controlled anarchy in some ways. <laughs> so, so perhaps this would be a good place for us to just diagram on the board the, the pattern. Most of you are familiar with it from, from when we cover the Book of Mormon. For instance, the Book of Helaman and Third Nephi. You've heard about the pride cycle. Well, it, it comes... It comes full circle in the book of Judges repeatedly, right? You, you have at the top this, this peace and prosperity where everything's great. You're, you're being blessed. It's wonderful. But then you start getting into some pride, which leads to people turning away from God so they turn towards the idols of their surrounding uh, people. Avram, what could you say about that? In, because the, the, the promised land or the holy land or Israel as we would call it today, it's not as if it's just one monolithic group of people all worshipping the same, the same deities. Right. So what you have is, you, again, this is, this is, it's called the land of Canaan and it's, it's again, full of... Canaanites, um, which is sort of a generic term for people who live in the land of Canaan. And sort of the, this, we don't know a lot about the gods they worshipped. We know a little bit. Um, of course, the most famous, and he shows up here in Judges, is Baal. Um, Baal is a word that means lord, master, I guess possessor. Um, you could translate it that way. It's actually a title um, for a god called in some places, um, you see in the Bible even, Hadad. He's the, um, the ancient storm god, the ancient rain god. And of course, this is part, in, in the ancient context, peace and prosperity means, again, for you and I who don't live in a subsistent agricultural world, um, we're kind of disconnected. But when your entire livelihood is based on rain, suddenly a god who brings rain is really important. The same way um, you have goddesses who are fertility goddesses. When your entire livelihood is based on having children, suddenly the ch- your children and your animals' um, ability to have um, offspring becomes really important. And so these are the kinds of things we see the Israelites moving towards. So what happens at this phase is they're turning away from their covenant connection with God, and they're turning to these idol worship uh, practices of the various groups of Canaanites that they didn't completely wipe out of the land. Probably not nearly as much as the book of Joshua would, would lead us to believe. Yeah, I would, I would probably say if you're kind of historically constructing it, if you read Joshua, everything seems cut and dry, finished, we've got it great, um, we're in the land, everything's divided. You start in Judges, especially Judges 2, and, and they're all still there. Judges probably presents a closer picture to how the conquest happened in Joshua. Joshua is a very much an, uh, what's a good word for it? Uh, ideological, uh, uh, a very optimistic version of how the conquest went. There you go. So this leads to greater and greater levels of wickedness, which then the Lord says, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. And they say, we don't want to be your people. We want to go and be the people of all these gods of the Canaanites. Well, they lose all of that protection, all of that blessing, all of that covenantal guidance from God. So what this leads to is God allows these people, these other nations among whom they live, to come in and destroy them. So they experience this destruction, which leaves them in this sorrow 
this lamentation, this despair. They're, they're at the bottom of the cycle, which then they begin to feel bad about it. They get humble right this way. So they set some humility in place. They turn to the Lord. They, they begin to more fully repent. What does he do? God raises up a judge to deliver the people. So the judge leads the people in, in battle. They, they push back their enemy. And there's a victory. And peace is restored. Now, basically, we could almost stop the lesson right here and say, take that pattern and repeat it 12 times. And that's the book of Judges. It's certainly, the, again, the message there. And then, and then um, the people, and eventually God says, let's, let's cut this out and let's try it with a king. But actually, we see, of course, with kings, we get basically the exact same pattern. So um, it, doesn't, it doesn't help the way that perhaps the people wanted it to. But, but it is intriguing that, again, when we get to 1 Samuel, the people are going to say, well, we want a king to, to fight for us. We don't have to have this problem anymore. They're trying, to, they're trying to almost find a way around this by saying if we had a king to fight our problems, we wouldn't need to be stuck in this cycle, um, which is, I think is intriguing in terms of how they try and solve it. But the out-solving it by saying, let's talk to God and do what he says, which is the actual solution to their problem. Absolutely. Now, one other, one other overlay item, and then we're going to jump into the, to the actual scripture text, is... Let's give you a, a thirty thousand foot overview of the the actual judges themselves. They're, you know, you you can number these differently if you'd like, but they're basically 12, 12 individuals who are listed in a time period that goes from roughly thirteen. And the, these are estimates. Very very rough. They're, they're very rough, so don't don't carve them in stone. But it's from basically 1350 down to about, what would you say, around 1015-ish? Yeah, that sounds about right. In that neighborhood. In that neighborhood, absolutely. So we're, we're somewhere in that ballpark, you have 12 people. You have Othniel is the first one, then Ehud, and Ehud and Eglon's story, we're, we're not going to go into great depth or into great detail with here. It's pretty cool, though. Yes. <laughs> then we have Shamgar and Deborah. She's one of the great ones. She's, we will talk about her. She's a shining spot in this in this fairly dark yeah, period. Book. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, and following Deborah, or during very similar yeah. times. So one thing about as we, as we put, write these things down is is that these do not necessarily need to be all sequential. It's very clear as you read Judges that. Very few judges judged all of Israel as a whole as all 12 tribes. The judges seem to have been more regional in their usage. And so we get some evidence that they could have been concurrent for many of these judges. Which is, again, a, a, a difference between the Old Testament judges and the Book of Mormon judges, where Alma the, the Younger, as the first chief judge, he right. is the judge over all the people, whereas I'm not sure that any of these would have been considered the judge over all no, of the United no. Israel. We don't see a chief judge type figure 
in um, our biblical book of Judges. Um, the uniting figure, actually the united figure in this period who would have been sort of order of all Israel would have been the tabernacle and then the priest at the tabernacle. So that, that would have been the, the, the one that all was going to recognize, not as a leader so much as sort of the religious um, center of ancient Israel. So you'll notice we, we ended with Shemgar and Deborah and then Gideon, Tola, Jair, Jephthah, Ibram, Elam, Abdon, and Samson. Now, Samson's probably, of the list, Gideon, Samson, and Deborah are probably your most famous three um, because their story gets told the most, um, the most widely. With good reason. They're pretty good stories. They, they are pretty good stories. <laughs> Unfortunately, Samson ends up dying of a fairly common foot condition that exists today, um, fallen arches. So He's here all week, guys. Yes. <laughs> The church is still true, in spite of everything you might hear. Um, so, we're going to take just a sampling. We are not going to try to cover all of these judges' stories. In fact, if you tried to cover them all, some of them, there's not a lot to say. <laughs> it's just, they judged Israel, this person, you know, they, they basically describe this and say, Tola judged Israel, he won, and then you start over again. It's kind of for a lot of these smaller judges' stories. Okay, so let's jump in. You ready for this? Yeah. So turn to chapter 2, and if you pick it up in verse 6. So here is the passing of the baton from Joshua to this period of Judges, starting in verse 6. And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went, every man unto his inheritance, to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. So looking at the, the cycle here, where are they? They're... They're humble, they've, they're turned to God, they're focused on worshiping Him, and they're experiencing this, this degree of peace and prosperity. But then, look at verse 8. Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. Uh-oh. When the judge, or in this case Joshua, when that person dies, it always seems to lead us down this, this track. And so you turn the page over, and it says, verse 11, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baalim. So, in Hebrew, Avram, when you put the I am, or the, that, that ending on any word. It's, it's a plural ending. It's, it's, it's the masculine plural ending. So, this would be, they served Baals. Um, of, again, very, again, part of it is, this is part of, part of the difficulty, is because Baal is just a title, there, there are various Canaanite gods. You could also, actually, in this period, apply Baal to Jehovah. In the same way you could apply Adonai to Jehovah. Um, Jehovah is often characterized in the scriptures in terms of these kind of storm god attributes, which seems to be part of the confusion that then the Israelites are struggling with in maintaining their covenant um, and their covenants generally. And in verse 13, they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And again, it's this notion of rain and fertility, kind of the two big things that the ancient Israelites are interested in. And by the way, this, this period in particular is useful. So Judges is part of a broader historical cycle in the um, Old Testament that scholars call the Deuteronomistic History. It's a nice um, TTRH for short. And what that is, is it's a history of Israel that's sort of based on the kind of covenant perspective found in the book of Deuteronomy. And so it's Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Samuel, Kings, Kings. So um, those are the DTRH. And doing evil in the sight of God, like we have there in verse 11, is 
basically always going to be in domestic history turning away and worshiping other gods besides Jehovah. It's a bit like when Mormon is editing the Book of Mormon, he will use a phrase, and thus we see. He'll tell a story, and thus we see, and he'll provide a conclusion. And these ancient, ancient inspired editors are trying to help us to see some lessons from history. Here's what happens when people turn away from God. And unfortunately, they have lots of stories to give evidence <laughs> of what happens when people turn away from God. <laughs> so look at verse 14. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about. So they could not any longer stand before their enemies. So now we're clear down here to this destruction phase, and it says, verse 15, Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said. Well then, look at verse 16. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. One of the things I love, actually, about the book of Judges, and about chapter 2 in particular, is we don't always get our inspired editor's schematic. Right? They don't always tell us, here's what I'm doing with my book. And Judges 2 makes it very clear, this is what I'm doing. They're laying out for us very clearly the intention of how this book is going to be organized. That's beautiful. So whoever whoever's writing this book, as it comes to us today... Like Avram saying, chapter 2 is really their, their overlaid lens to say, we're showing you this pattern so that when we then tell you all these stories, you can see all these steps. So look at verse 15, or sorry, verse 18. And when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. So this is probably a good place to pause for just a second with this idea of, raise, of God raising up judges to deliver the people. The way you and I in English in the 21st century interpret the word judge is we picture a person sitting in a black robe up on a judgment seat in a courtroom with a gavel in his or her hand making a decision and banging the gavel down and passing judgment. In antiquity, what is, what is a judge? So if you look at these stories, a judge would be better translated as a savior or a deliverer, somebody who releases individuals or groups from bondage or their really destructive circumstances they're in. Now, in some ways, that's what judges are doing in our modern day. You know, if you are uh, inappropriately brought before the judge, the judge is going to release you. But in this case, in the ancient world, it was much more dramatic. You're stuck in circumstances you cannot solve for yourself and God sends a savior. He sends a deliverer. So in some ways, uh, it'd be interesting if instead of, we, of calling this the book of Judges, we called it the book of deliverers or the book of saviors for ancient Israel. It would help us to remember what's going on. And the point here is to symbolize the savior who pulls us out of our own cycles of destruction, where we get pulled away and distracted by the things that we think are gonna save us, and God sends a savior to bring us back into his presence. And with that, by the way, it's very clear there are numerous places in the Old Testament where Jehovah is described as a judge. This, the, the Hebrew word is shofet here, where he's described. So, for example, just one off the top of my head here in, in Genesis 18, when um, Abraham is, is talking with God about, about um, Israel, about Sodom, I about Sodom and Gomorrah there. Um, he asks, verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? i.e. Jehovah there is the Shofet, the judge, the deliverer of the whole earth. And 
Abraham's argument is, well, shouldn't you be delivering these people? And it's persuasive that he can't find them to do, um, do it, as we talked about previously with that story. But this idea that not only does he sending these deliverers, but all these deliverers are they're models for who Jehovah really is and his behavior towards the whole earth. So now let's continue this overview cycle, verse 19. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them. They ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. By the way, did you catch that? That wording there is interesting. They cease not from their own doings, which ties into that very last verse of the, the book of Judges. They did that which was right in their own eyes or in their own sight. It's the, the whole Old Testament narrative, to me, one of the overlays of it is, am I going to set my sights on God and seek his will to do it? Or am I going to put my eyes on the earth and cut myself off from God and do what I want to do? I have agency. He doesn't prevent me from doing that. But he can't let me do that and stay in a, in a position of peace and prosperity. So they're doing their own doings rather than God's doings. It reminds me of the, uh, the C.S. Lewis statement of, in the end, there are really only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. And it... It's just sad. And you actually see that even in this thing there, right? Where in, um, starting in 20, he gets mad again, they're transgressed, and he says, verse 21, also will not ha I also will not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died. God says, you're not going to kick them out? Okay, I, I won't. It's fine. We'll, we'll leave it for you. Uh, so yeah, I think, it's, I think it's very intriguing. There are numerous places in Scripture where God says, okay, is that what you want? You want to be like the other nations? Okay, we'll bring other nations in to be with you for this. And look at verse 22. That through them I may prove Israel whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein as their fathers did keep it or not. It's worth remembering here, by the way, also. So we talked before about Deuteronomistic history, DTRH. DTRH is probably composed the reign of King Josiah and immediately after, right around the time of the start of the Book of Mormon. I.e., the authors and editors of, of DTRH, Deuteronomistic History, they know the end of this story. They know what's going to happen in terms of this. And so even though they're building on these early traditions from judges, they're also aware that it's not going to end well for Israel. And they have sort of Babylon exile in their sights as they're sort of putting these things together, these like Mormon, as they're redacting and um, editing their, the, this work. Perfect. Now he ends verse or chapter 2 with, with verse 23. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out hastily, neither delivered he them into the hand of Joshua. Once again, when you read the book of Joshua, it makes it sound like, okay, it's all, it's all cleaned. The land is now free for Israel and only Israel, but that is not the case. Which opens up chapter 3. What is the first implication of having other nations there? Verse 6, they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and served their gods. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served Baalim and the groves. 
And again, this is just what we're going to do. And, and part of the problem, as always, it's worth remembering for us as we talk about Israelite religion, the worship of Jehovah, Canaanite religion, the difficulty is always going to be not that they're so different, but that they're so very similar. Okay? From an ancient perspective, if we looked at the, I mean, the, the worship of Jehovah, it would have looked to many people like this sort of Canaanite. And so the Israelites seem to think that, well, you know, it's not that different, so we don't have to worry about it. And Jehovah says, no, no, there's a real big difference here, guys, and it's me. I'm the difference that we're worried about here. So. And what's interesting here, we talk at the, about the Baalim and the groves. You could actually translate the, that to Ashtaroth. These are poles or groves or trees that represent this fertility goddess. If you look at First Nephi, early on, there's this amazing and powerful dream and a vision about a tree of salvation. So you can imagine the Israelites who are off worshiping false gods, but using trees to represent salvation. And then you have Nephi who understands these traditions. He gets the revelation that teaches the truth, that God himself repre is represented by this tree and the fruit of that atonement draws us to him. We have these interesting traditions where the Israelites can't seem to understand the truth about God and they let themselves get distracted about God's characteristics and they impose that on false gods or false things and they start following those things. If, again, back in chapter two, it's all about are they going to keep the covenant? Will they be loyal to God in that relationship or are they going to cheat on God and follow after other relationships and therefore miss out on all the promised blessings? So the stage is now set for, for verse eight, the anger of the Lord is kindled. Verse 9, the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. The Lord raised up a deliverer. So you see that. They're, they're down here. They cried unto the Lord. So God raises up our first... And notice it didn't use the word judge in this context in the KJV. It says their first deliverer. And it's worth noting that first deliverer, that the Othniel here, is he's Caleb's ne um, nephew. Okay, and so there's this continuity with the um, with the the generation of Joshua. Remember, Joshua and Caleb were the two spies who spied. They're, they're the good spies of the twelve um, spies. And so, and so, as judges, as we begin this whole process, the Lord gives Israel sort of continuity with the previous sort of leadership: Moses, Joshua, Caleb, with um, this sort of familiar connection between Othniel and and Caleb. Very, very powerful. That that. It, it gives him that that sense of connection and authenticity to be a leader because of his family relation. Now, what does Othniel do? Verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel, and he went out to war. And there the Lord, the Lord delivers him from Hushan Rishatayim, which is a word that means, it means, I mean, it means double evil. And this is probably just tradition about how bad this guy um, is in the um, ancient Israelite perspective. Um, it's kind of great. And by the way, as a small thing, Mesopotamia here is not Iraq. The Hebrew here is Aram Naharaim. So this is up in Syria. This is this is actually really close to where um, Abraham comes from, rather than from Iraq. And sort of the, the two rivers here are not the Tigris and Euphrates. So there in verse ten, it also says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. This idea of the Spirit of the Lord. The, or, or Jehovah coming upon the judges. This is how judges are called in the book of Judges. And the, the actual Hebrews rushed on him. The spirit of Jehovah rushes on the um, 
on the judge, and then he's called, and he gets this charismatic authority to lead and save and deliver Israel. I love you pointing this out, because this word prosperity shows up in the book of Judges, where it says, and the Lord did prosper Samson. And the underlying Hebrew is that the Spirit of the Lord rushed down upon him. I think, well, that's interesting. When we go partake of the sacrament, we are claiming our loyalty to God that we can also have the Spirit of God rush down upon us and prosper us. So when we look in the Book of Mormon about God prospering people, sure, material blessings is often what God wants to offer people, but the most significant thing is when we talk about prospering, it's having the Spirit of God. When you're with God, when you have His Spirit, you can do anything. That's the lesson I, I see here. That is a really important one. So that prosperity under Othniel's deliverance lasts in verse 11 for 40 years. A long time. But then he died. So you're, gonna, you're going to see that pattern again repeat over and over is the judge dies and verse 12, the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And again, in a DTRH context, that's always going to be idolatry. That's always going to be worship gods besides the God of Israel. And so what does God do? He strengthened Eglon, or Eglon, the king of Moab. Eglon means the cow guy, by the way. <laughs> kind of a fun... Okay. The cow guy. <laughs> yeah, it's his calf, but uh, he's the, which probably plays into how he's portrayed in this chapter. Yeah, they portray <laughs> him as very, very um, large. So notice verse 14. They served the king of Moab 18 years. They're, they're in an 18-year bondage. Very similar to us. I, I wonder if this cycle of the book of Judges is, if, if we let it, it, it can become a pattern for our life where we repent, God forgives us, and then we fall back into sin, and then we serve that sin for a while, and then we repent, and then we fall back. I don't think God intended for us to live our life like this, going around in circles. I think he intended the covenant path to not ever have us turning away from him, but to have peace and prosperity drive us to deeper humility, which leads to further repentance and more deliverance and more victories and greater prosperity. I think we don't have to feel like a victim to this whole judge cycle or pride cycle. So I, I just wanted to point that out because it can get pretty discouraging. We've just barely gotten to the second judge in the cycle, and it already feels heavy. But I don't think that was intended to be the pattern of what it means to be a disciple on the covenant path today. So in verse 15 it says, But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera. A Benjaminite, a man left-handed. I think there's this fun detail sometimes in the scriptures. The word Benjamin literally means son of the right hand. And yet this guy's left-handed. So there's almost like this fun wordplay going on that you have this right-handed tribe, the, the tribe named for the right hand, and yet the guy who's a deliverer is left-handed. There's all this creativity. Now, in our culture, left-handedness has often been seen as less than. Like, in fact, in French, the word for left means is sinister. And the idea was that people who are left-handed were sinister, and, and yet we have this guy who doesn't fit the mold of typical right-handedness, about 90% of the population, and God uses an unexpected character who people thought, mm, we can't trust him because he doesn't fit the cult, our, mo our mold. He doesn't fit the mold. He actually is raised up by God 
to deliver. And I think that's a lesson for all of us. That we, actually, we, we may not fit the mold. God can help. His left, it's not just as for the mold. His left-handedness is vital to how he saves Israel because he straps the um, knife to the inside of his right thigh, which they, when he goes in to see Ehud, they don't search him there because, you know, it's kind of weird, awkward to be right hand to try and pull that out. But it's just one motion. And so it, not only is it that he doesn't fit the mold, his not fitting the mold is specifically how he is able to save Israel. I just love how God does his work and he uses his children who are faithful to him to bring about incredible purposes. Which means, by the way, just a directly whatever, if you don't fit the mold, God can use that to actually do his work. That there are things that it's, it's you God likes. And I love that about the God we worship is that what he wants is us. The consecrated tailor is different than the consecrated Avram. It's different than the consecrated Tyler. And God wants all of us in our forms and, and what we can bring to the kingdom. What an amazing thing it would be then if we spent less time comparing ourselves to each other and feeling either superior or inferior in those comparisons. But if we spent, instead of our time doing that, spend our time going to the Lord in, in sincere meekness to say, you gave me these unique characteristics, this unique combination of gifts and talents and abilities and struggles. What can I do with this package that you've given me in order to help build thy kingdom and help connect people more fully with, with thee and with the heavenly? That, that would be, I think, a, a better usage of our time rather than comparing. And one of the great messages of the book of Judges in general is that the kinds of people that God calls to deliver tend to be people on the margins. These do not tend to be sort of, you know, I mean, you know, we've got Benjaminite, this left-hander. Our next judge, um, as we Shamgar. go, um, Shamgar, or the ox goat, he only gets one verse. We don't know about him. But the one after that is, is totally an outlier. Why? Well, mostly because she's a woman. Um, she's the only female judge. She's actually, she's, there's a lot of intriguing things um, with Deborah. She's a prophetess. She's the only um, female judge. She's... Actually, she's really intriguing in a lot of ways. And her uh, name it. means her name means her name means something like it, it, it's honeybee. Um, is what De Devorah in Hebrew, Deborah. And there's some evidence in ancient Near East of a connection between sort of honey, honey dripping down, and prophecy. So this may relate to her role as a prophetess, as she's described in um, our story here in Judges. Which, if you look at verse uh, four and five, it tells you her name. She's a prophetess. So you'll notice that you don't get the label of prophet with these other judges. They, they're just called deliverers. But she gets the label first and foremost, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth. She judged Israel at that time. Now, what does that look like in her context? Verse 5, she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim. That's in northern Israel. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So that it's this beautiful Christ-like image of her under this tree, as Taylor's already talked about, the tree of life being a representation or a symbol for Christ. And he who knows all and can, can give the best counsel, he, he is the greatest counselor of all. So here's Deborah sitting under this tree, dwelling under this tree, and people come to her for judgment, because she's this prophetess, she she can know things that they don't know. 
I love that imagery of, of these people coming to her in this Christ-like way. And Deborah, by the way, is the only judge who has a specific religious type affiliation thing. I mean, they're all called by God. Spirit of God rushes on all of them. But she's the only one who's specifically identified as any kind of prophetic or priestly figure, which is, I think, intriguing for her because we don't always think about the religious roles that women play, even in the Old Testament. Even our own day, we don't really think about it, but especially in the Old Testament, and Deborah's distinctive for that. So now it's an intriguing thing about the Deborah narrative is that, so you've got the stories in, you've got the story in Deborah 4, Sisera comes down, they're, they're, they're enslaved to these, these, these Canaanites, we don't actually know which Canaanites these are. It's very unspecified in um, Deborah's book, which is unfortunate. Um, but you have, the, and then there's this guy, Barak, who Deborah says you need to come be a general. Barak's kind of a little wishy-washy and says, you've got to come with me. By the way, one of the cool things about the Deborah story is this is really a story about women acting to save Israel. Almost all the action that happens in the Deborah story is women leading out for this. And you've got this really great story here in, in Judges 4, so you got this narrative, but again, because it's not even Barak and the armies that end up defeating Sisera. It's, it's, it's and again, the margins again. So Sisera goes to the tent of this Midianite, Yael, Jael, and she puts a tent spike through his head, basically. Um, which, um, but she's the one who actually does it. It's this woman who delivers the action through it. So you have this whole narrative that's presented in Judges 4. And then immediately afterwards, in Judges 5, you have, again, 5-1, then saying Debron Barak, the son of Ahinoam, on that day saying, and you have this, this poem. Now, what's intriguing about this poem is that as we look at the Hebrew underlying our Old Testament, Judges 5 is one of the oldest Hebrew um, texts, but it's probably the oldest text we have in our current Bible. See, as, as the Bible, we, we talked already today even about this idea of... of how the Bible was edited, like Mormon, right? They have all these things that go into the composition of the Bible. You and I are used to kind of a literate society where we expect to be able to read things. In the ancient world, in ancient Israel, things were primarily transmitted orally. And they would have had these stories and these songs. And some of those stories and songs are then preserved. Some of them are in the Psalms, of those tend to be later. Um, but so our, our two oldest texts are actually this, and then the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. Um, those are our two oldest texts. And what it looks like actually is, is that the song is probably the original. It's probably what the ancient author and other judges had. And then with these other narratives, he kind of has the song and then tells the narrative that we see based on what's in the song. And it's actually it's beautiful stuff. But it represents a very, very old stage of the Israelite tradition that, again, the DTRH and our later editors are going to work through. Um, and, it's, and it's part of why I think why Deborah is so distinctive is because she represents almost one of the earliest stages we have of Jehovah's relationship with Israel and of who Jehovah uses to save his people. So now in, in a plot twist, you get the Midianites who helped deliver Israel in chapter 5. They actually become the conquerors in chapter 6. So now they have taken over. Verse 1, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. So, we have this, this multitude in verse 5 that they describe as grasshoppers. 
that have come in this conquest. Verse 6, Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. So, verse 8 says, The Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. Isn't this interesting? God sends a prophet, but we don't get his name. No. It's just an unnamed prophet who goes before it. He's not, he's not a judge. He's, his whole motion here, like prophets usually in the Old Testament, is to deliver God's word. Again, that thus saith the Lord is very distinctive of prophetic speech in the Old Testament. And what the prophet does is reminds them of their covenantal obligation delivered from Moses at Mount Sinai to the people. This is, you guys are in the promised land. Your job and responsibility is to be covenantally connected to God, to be loyal to him, to not cheat on him. And these phrases here is the prophet reminding people of God's loyalty to them, of all he had done to save them. Therefore, they owe him their loyalty. Now, if you look at the Abinadi story in the Book of Mormon, you have a man coming among the people, speaking in the name of the Lord, and essentially doing the same thing, saying, you guys are going to fall into bondage or are in bondage if you do not listen to the Lord. You need to remember his loyalty to you. So this same pattern shows up throughout the Bible and throughout the Book of Mormon. It's fascinating. And it's useful because, and there's something, as you read sort of ancient scripture, because of our own religious tradition, we tend to view prophets as being kind of the primary leaders of the people. You know, they're, they're, they're the religious leaders. But that's not the role we always see in the Old Testament, even in the Book of Mormon. Abinadi comes to give a message not to lead the people. This prophet, doesn't, he's not a judge. He's come here to give a message to the people. And so it's worth noting sometimes that the prophet doesn't always have the full valence that it sometimes has in the modern Church of Jesus Christ. That's very helpful. So we now need to raise up a deliverer against these Midianites so the Lord picks, once again, somebody who is about as far out on the periphery of society as he could have found. Somebody um, of Manasseh, in this case, and his name is Gideon. You've probably heard his name before. And he has this interesting interaction with the angel of the Lord that appeared to him and uh, tells him that he is a mighty man of valor. And can you picture Gideon sitting there saying, uh, I'm just threshing wheat over here behind the, the wine press to hide from the Midianites. I, I'm a nobody. I'm just this common guy. In fact, look at his wording in verse 15. He said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So Manasseh isn't known as this big, powerful tribe in Israel. And I am the least in my father's house. I, I'm totally unknown. I'm not a mighty man of valor. It's even more than that. If you go back, even back to 13, Gideon, you know, he says, the Lord is with thee. And Gideon says, oh, by the way, you can see the two types of Lord here. So he addressed the angel as my Lord. You see it's um, just regular in the small caps there. That's Jehovah. So, oh, my Lord, if Jehovah be with us, then why has all this befallen us? And where are the miracles? which he did for our fathers when he brought us out of Egypt. I mean, Gideon basically puts this back on God. And the angel says, look, the Lord's with you. And, jo and Gideon says, really? Because if Jehovah's with us, then why are, we, why are we here? Where's all the great stuff he's done for us? 
<laughs> and, the, and in answer to that, verse 16, the Lord said unto him, and notice, as, as Avram pointed out, in your King James Version of the Old Testament, when you see the capital L-O-R-D, you can just replace that with Jehovah. You probably ought to, actually, even. Yeah. So we could say, and Jehovah said unto him, Surely I will be with thee. Notice that? I, the Lord God of Israel, this one that you've been talking about who did all these things. Well, guess what? As I was with Moses and with Joshua, now, Gideon, I'm with you. You're my chosen servant, and thou shalt smite the Midian, Midianites as one man. In some ways, I love this, because basically, you know, Gideon says to God, well, why don't you do something? And God says, I did. I sent you. And I think sometimes <laughs> in our lives we do this, we're like, God, why don't you do something? And God says, I did. I sent you. I mean, honestly, we can just... So, the, the, the Gideon story, again, we see examples in um, Judges 6. I mean, Gideon's really insecure. This kind of reminds us a little bit of Moses, who makes so many excuses, God gets mad at him. Reminds us a little bit of Enoch, you know, why pick me? We see this a lot in, um, in the scriptures, where they're called, they're insecure. But part of the message for Gideon is he's got this whole thing where Gideon gathers Israel to fight, and God says, nah, that's too many. And he needs all these various tests to go down. I think part of the message is, again, Gideon in some ways laid a challenge to God. He says, where are the miracles? And God says, you want a miracle? Let me show you a miracle. And so I think a lot of his Gideon's story is about that. Exactly. Now, before we actually get into chapter 7 where the, the deliverance takes place, I think it's fascinating how Gideon takes his, his new assignment as the deliverer so seriously that before he assembles any of the army, before he goes off to any fight, he recognizes that the real fight, the real enemy here, isn't the Midianites. It's the idol worship. So he does something very fascinating. <laughs> he goes at night, takes some people, and he, he cuts down the groves where they're worshiping idols, breaks down the altars. The next morning, the men assemble and find everything destroyed and say, who did this? And they realize who it was. And so they go to Gideon's father and say, send out your son so we can kill him. And gratefully, his dad has a nice response. It's very, again, it's part of this whole ongoing discussion. It's like, look, if Baal wanted to protect you, he could have. It's basically, the you know, <laughs> if he's a real god, then let him come out and explain it himself. Let him do it. Let him destroy my son. <laughs> and so... That's a, it's a powerful way for, for Gideon to begin his conquest. In my mind, the fact that he attacked first the idol-worshipping is a beautiful pattern for our life. Cleanse the inner vessel before you start worrying about the, the external problems or the external enemies. So, you get to chapter 7, and let's just, let's just put this in context. Because in chapter 8, we learned that the number of Midianites is 135,000. So if you just start doing some fun math in your mind, um, in chapter 7 we start with 32,000 Israelite soldiers to go up against 135,000. If you do the math, it's, it's roughly 1 to 4. So your guys are going to have to take out four of their guys in order to break even in this battle. So you're following this so far. Um, but the Lord tells him, verse 2, the people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest 
Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. Look how strong we were. One to four and we won. Sounds like the Nephites at times in the Book of Mormon. Yes, it does. And this is a major theme. We get, when we finally get to the prophets towards the end of the Old Testament here this year, this is something that Job is constantly telling them. You, you can't. I, I did this so you wouldn't be able to say this, guys. That's right. <laughs> so then he goes, the Lord tells him to go to the people and say, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 men said, uh, yeah, that's me. I'm out of here. So they left. So we went from 32,000 down to 10,000. So now your odds, just if you're keeping track of the ratio, it's, it's roughly 1 to 13.5 or, you know, somewhere between 13 and 14 men that each one of your guys is going to have to take out. And you think, wow, we've just crippled our forces, but, you know, we're going to watch God do his work. But, verse 4, the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many. Bring them down unto the water, and I will try them for thee there. So, what's his little, uh, his, his little test at the water? It's, it's kind of weird and arbitrary, which I think is actually the point, is that he has them, um, they gum down, and those that drink the water, just lapping it up, it's just like a dog um, there, Put them those, and those ones that um, bow down and kind of put up their hand, you put them separately. And he says, I'll take the ones that um, lap up the water with, uh, like, a dog. And I think, I think the purpose here, again, it seems arbitrary. I think the, the actual purpose, again, I don't want to read God's mind. But I think what God is doing here is, is it's, you're more likely to try and drink with your hands than just lap. And so it's going to be the, the smallest number God can possibly get from this group. Which now, if you're, if you're down to 300 versus the 135,000, now your ratio is somewhere in the ballpark of 1 to 450. I don't know if you can picture in your mind what 450 trained, armed soldiers looks like, but each one from Israel would be responsible. But I think even there, the Lord's making a point. It's not you who's going to destroy them. It's me who's going to deliver you. So it's, it's part of his point here. So that nobody in the future could say, wow, the Israelites are the best fighters ever because they actually don't really engage as much in the battle. They use this this fun technique that the Lord inspires Gideon with to split his men into three groups of a hundred and go at different parts of the camp of Midian by night with lanterns inside of these these, uh, pots and have trumpets and at his sign, what does he do? They break the uh, the pots and they the sing and they blow the trumpets and they make this huge noise. And the Midianites are first of all, the Midianites are, God had sent a bad dream to the Midianites um, before, and they're like, "It's a giant! We're surrounded by this huge army!" And it routes them basically out any um, combat initially. Now, of course, with Gideon, and Gideon's uh, one of the things I love about the Old Testament is the willingness of the Old Testament to tell a sort of rounded story of its characters. The um, the Old Testament, the Bible in general, the Old Testament in particular, is really okay with telling the whole story. And so we have, so Gideon, and there are great things that Gideon does. He delivers them. They they, they kind of want to make him whatever. But then he, you know, in, in, in kind of in the middle of eight, he makes an aphod that leads Israel away to, an aphod is, we're not actually entirely sure what it is. It's some kind of sort of priestly image type 
thing. Um, that's the best as I can. That's a technical term, by the way, guys. Priestly image type thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but this causes later on the Israelites are going to to worship it and use it as as a probably symbol as Jehovah still, but uses it as a as a way for unauthorized religious worship. And this is part of the thing and the message here is Gideon is great, and there's no sense that Gideon's a bad guy, but sometimes things happen that uh, we don't always expect, and that that's part of the message of, of uh, some of this entire life. That's a beautiful reminder of Rome that it's that it's not that Gideon is perfect mm-hmm. and he does everything exactly the way God would have wanted him to do it. He still had his agency. And perhaps there was some some missteps along the way here, but let's not hold him hostage to that. Absolutely we'll, not. We'll uh, extend to Gideon the same grace that we want people to send to us. It's kind of my... Um... Yes. I think in the words of the Savior would be, with whatsoever judgment you judge, therewith shall you also be judged. It's it's that idea. Or We, we look at the whole story with, with eyes wide open, but at the end of the day, we recognize the hand of God in his life, working through him. And I hope, we, we hope, we can all do that, not just with each other as well, but also with that person looking at you in the mirror. Because you, more than anybody, know what that person has done wrong, as well as what that person has done right. And perhaps Gideon's story could be another reminder of us to, to give the benefit of the doubt whenever possible, that let God prevail in our life and, and recognize the, the shortcomings. Which, again, we're going to, to jump a little because there's, there's other cool stories there. One of the things I love about Judges, really, I mean, obviously we read scriptures for these spiritual messages, but Judges is one of these great examples of ancient hero literature. Okay, it's like reading the Odyssey. It's like reading um, the Aeneid. It's just, there are these really neat stuff in there. And I guess the primary purpose, of course, for reading scripture is to bring us closer to God and help us have a better relationship with each other and with Jesus Christ. But there's value in recognizing that sometimes Scripture can just be fun. And there's some cool stuff in here. Um, but in terms of this notion of, you know, the whole story, uh, Samson is interesting, we will say. Samson is unfortunately one of the, the greatest tragedies in my mind of the entire Old Testament. This this guy who started with so much promise, so much capacity, and ended with so little, and yet the Lord still used him, even in his, he broke every vow, every covenant, every promise that had been given to him and that he had made. He breaks them all, but at the end of the day, even in his lowest moment, God still uses him as an instrument to deliver Israel from the Philistines in this case. And it's also worth noting, perhaps, kind of jumping to the end a little bit, but in his worst moment, his lowest moment, he also calls on God again. He does. That, you know, that that, that Samson's story actually ends with him asking God for help. And there may be value in seeing, because we tend to focus, I mean, he's kind of like this Hercules figure, right? He's big, he's strong, he's this golden boy. Actually, his name means like the sun guy. Right, Shemesh. Shemesh is the um, root for Shemshon, Samson. So he's kind of, I mean, like he burns brightly. He's like, um, again, he's almost presented in this kind of almost Greek demigod kind he's of a way. Hercules figure. <laughs> and his hair is almost like the rays of sunlight that bring power, which is symbolically why you don't cut the hair, because that is representative of the source of power. Like if you cut the rays of the sun, well, that 
no longer you have heat or light for the earth, the whole thing's destroyed. So really interesting things going on in this particular uh, story. So to introduce the, the actual beginning of Samson's story, now that we've kind of overviewed it, um, look at chapter 13, verse 1. Of course, we're skipping all of these other multiple stories. And they're cool, so you should read them. And so we're, we're just skipping all of these, and we're going to go down to chapter 13, where it opens... And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines 40 years. I know, I know, it, it was shocking. You didn't expect to see that coming there, but sometimes there's a plot twist, and there you go again. Okay, and this is another, in terms of the narrative, right? Samson's kind of our, our last judge here, and suddenly we've, we've had, you know, these people. We've had the Aram Naharaim. We've had, you know, Midianites. We've had generic Canaanites. Note here, the bad guys are the, the Philistines. Philistines. Okay, this is going to be a major thing. They're a power that moves in to the coastal land. So Israel's real strength is in the center of what's now the um, Israel-Palestine, the land of Canaan then. The Canaanites are going to, um, they're, they're, they're probably part of the Sea Peoples, and they become a major issue as we move forward in the Bible. And they, the, the Philistines are going to come up over and over and over again. Like he said, they're, they're on that, that coastline of the Mediterranean Sea where today maybe Gaza Strip and, and up towards northern parts of Israel, all along that coastline. Yeah, although, although again, and part of it is the Philistines are technologically and culturally more advanced than the Israelites. And this is, this is part of um, why there's so much tension. They're, they're another growing power who have some skills that the Israelites, and we'll see later on, um, the Philistines are able to work iron before the Philistines. This is a transition between the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, and the Philistines bring iron working earlier than the, um, than the Israelites have it. So, verse 2, there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites. So now we're going to the tribe of Dan. Have you noticed a pattern in the book of Judges that it's not one tribe is always the delivering tribe. It's the, These are... These are coming from a variety of places. And that's really useful because, of course, I mean, the authors of the Bible generally are Judites. Okay, so Judah is kind of the lens through which um, the Old Testament, and even the New Testament, um, is written. Um, but it's nice because it's a rhyme of the one that all Israel is part of this. And Judges gives some really great examples of tribes besides Judah doing things and helping out. So the angel appears in verse 3 unto a woman who is, in verse 2, barren and bear not. And we see this throughout the Old Testament, is the, these stories of, of couples who are not able to have children. And, and as Avram said earlier, the land producing and a family being able to produce posterity, that's life for them. That's where they get their, their whole sense of of being is, and survival is in these two realms. And pragmatically, I mean, there aren't social nets and social structures in place. And so if you're going to be supported, you need children to support you. I mean, this, this is a very real economic and life necessity. So Avram, at this point, it's fascinating because traditionally in our biblical narratives, we see heavenly visitors coming to the men, usually is the, the, the traditional flow. In this case, who is it that comes and who gets visited? Well, it's intriguing. So, so there's this figure, the angel of the Lord. Um, he went Malach Yahweh, Malach Jehovah, angel of Jehovah. And 
in the Old Testament, that means it's Jehovah. Okay, the angel of the Lord is the direct messenger. There's some evidence actually that these are textual additions, in, at least in some places, that it's actually Jehovah appearing. And it's key because we get the name of Manoah, but the angel, at least initially, or Jehovah himself, does not appear to Manoah, but to Manoah's wife, to Samson's mother. And this is really valuable because this is an example. She is able to receive revelation for herself. She is able to have that direct communication with God herself about her son, Samson. And that's really important to highlight as we think through the scriptures. We saw something with Rebecca and things like that. There are other places, but it's really valuable that the Lord communicates with her. He, he tells her, by the way, don't drink any strong drink. Don't eat any unclean thing. Why? Verse 5, For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. It's that idea of your child is going to be a great deliverer. Now, a cultural thing, Nazarite is a special level of sort of covenant significance that you find in places in the law. You sort of dedicate yourself, usually for a short period of time, to um, the Lord as um, so you keep an even stricter version of the law. And it, here, you don't cut your hair or your face or your beard. You don't um, to actually touch anything from the grapes, so not even raisins. Um, it says very specifically, but no drink, so no alcohol. And you um, have a a, even more specific rules about touching dead bodies. And the idea here is that Samson's going to keep these vows from when he's a baby upwards. And um, that's at least the idea of what um, that will sort of lead to his strength. We see actually, as Tyler kind of pointed to, he actually keeps none of them. Yeah, he's, he's going to cut himself off from every, oh, that's cute. Single, every single connection that God has made with him. So in chapter 14, he's born at the end of chapter 13, and chapter 14 begins with him um, seeing a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. So one of the very, very strict laws of the law of Moses is marrying the covenant. Don't marry outside the family. So the very first thing, right out of the chute, the first introduction to this, this child of promise, this great deliverer is he was down among the Philistines and... He saw a woman that he really uh, liked and wants to marry. So, and of course, in, in, in three, it talks, you see this, the first, the uncircumcised Philistines. And this is going to be, we see this a lot as the narrative comes up. This one is the distinctive features of the Philistines. So, one of the things, we, of course, for Abraham, circumcision is a sign of the covenant. And it, it's it, actually in uh, the Abraham covenant, before it sort of changed in the Jerusalem Council, it's sort of the premier sign of the covenant between God. But the Israelites were not the only people in the ancient world who were circumcised. We haven't seen Egyptians did so. Many of the Canaanites, we have some Phoenician evidence. So the Israelites being circumcised isn't going to be weird outside of the covenant significance. But the Philistines are not a Semitic people. Maybe the Egyptians, but this is, um, they're not Canaanites. They're, they, they're related to, um, in, culturally and linguistically, to Greeks and um, some of these things. And so the idea that they're not circumcised is one, they're so far outside the covenant that they can't even, I mean, I mean, this is not just a people, this is an alien people from the ancient Israelite perspective. So, he, he prevails on his mom and dad to, to go and take this, this daughter of the Philistines for him to marry her. 
And on his way, you get that that story of him finding the carcass of the lion with the the honey inside of the carcass, and he dips the stick in it and eats the honey. Remember, as a Nazarite, he can't touch dead bodies. Okay, other Israelites can. They're unclean and they wash themselves. As he's not supposed to touch any dead bodies. But there you go, and he, as part of this seven-day wedding ceremony and festivities. He puts out a riddle to them and says, hey, if you can, you can solve my riddle, I'll give you this. And if you can't, you give me that. And so the riddle is in verse 14. Out of the eater came forth meat, and out of the strong came forth sweetness. And they could not in three days expound the riddle. And thus begins this pattern in Samson's life where he's doing things that, that almost for him, to, for his game, and it's for his sport and for his entertainment. Samson saves Israel, but only accidentally. Is kind of the way I would um, frame that. And by the way, as a brief cultural aside, um, the prize is 30 sheets and 30 garments. And for us in the modern age with machine-made clothing, we're like, yay? You get clothes for this? But in the ancient world where every cloth had to be hand-woven and hand-sewn, this is a mighty, mighty Rise. We actually, we find wills in the ancient world where they pass down clothing because it's so important because you don't want to just, it, it, it takes so much to make um, clothing in the ancient world. So, so these men who can't figure out his riddle keep going to his wife and begging her to figure out or to get from him the answer to the riddle. And then they threaten her. If you don't tell us the answer, we're, we're going to do bad things to you. And so she pleads with him, and he tells her the answer on day seven, right at, right at that final hour. And then they come, and they tell him the riddle. And so he, his response is one of frustration. He goes down to Ashkelon. He slew 30 men of them and took their spoil. And so, so he's like, I'll make the clothing just to kill a bunch of guys. And, take, um, take, uh, and by the way, Ashkelon is a Philistine city. So he takes it, again, this is sort of the accidental saving Israel. He kills a bunch of Philistines to give them um, the prize for that. And so he then leaves, leaving his, his new wife behind, and her father gives the new wife to his friend. To, it, so this story gets very convoluted very quickly. So when Samson eventually goes back down to, to be with his wife again, he finds out that she's been given to another man. It, it makes him pretty upset. So his retaliation, not, it, it's so interesting that it's all selfishly motivated, at least it seems to be, it's all, what, you did that? So to get revenge, he takes 300 foxes, and what does he do? He ties um, firebrands to their tails, torches to their tails, and sends them through their, um, um, through their crops. He thinks it's probably this great, I mean, it's for revenge, it's this great prank on the um, Philistines as he runs the, you know, as he, he's like, I'm not destroying their crops, it's just the foxes, guys. Well, the Philistines find out who has caused this great destruction among them, and they say, oh, it was Samson, and he was married to her, and, and it was caused because her father gave her to somebody. So what do they do? The Philistines go and... They burn them. It's, a, it's just kind of this let the punishment fit the crime kind of thing. It's pretty terrible, actually. And so then you get Samson who, in response to that, turns around and takes, the, the story says he takes the jawbone of a donkey, his jawbone of an ass, and he goes and he slays a thousand 
Philistines. So then chapter 16, he, we find Samson going down to Gaza. Another Philistine city. And there he saw a harlot, and he went in unto her. And so all the Gazites, they said, oh, he's, we've got Samson in here. Let's, let's trap him, and in the morning we're going to kill him. But at midnight, verse 3, he rose. He took the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and went with them, bar and all, and put them upon his shoulders and carried them up to the top of an hill that is before Hebron. Hebron is miles and miles away. Gaza. This, this is the, the whole point is he's tearing this across half the land of Canaan to uh, make his point about how cool he is. And it's not just one part yeah. of the gate; it's the two posts and the bar and all that he's carrying on his shoulders. He's he is this Herculean figure in this story. Then verse four: It came to pass afterward that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Now, what's intriguing about Delilah is it's not you know his previous wife is very clear was a Philistine. Delilah's not specified whether she's Philistine or Israelite. And the story works both ways, which is um, intriguing for us. So in verse 5, the Philistines come to her and they say, entice him. This is a different story if she's a Philistine or if she's an Israelite. And how you read, again, we don't know for a fact, the implication may be that she's Philistine, but the fact that the biblical author doesn't tell us means that there is intriguing ambiguity in this narrative and which will affect how you how her, her reactions with it one way or the other. If she's a Philistine, then her reacting with the Philistines and sort of selling um, Samson out to Philistine makes a lot of sense. If she's an Israelite, it makes that betrayal even um, sharper when she sells him out to the Philistines. So after this whole thing in, um, in Gaza, Samson marries this woman Delilah and she basically becomes a tool that the leaders of the Philistines use to try and get the secret of his great strength. And of course, I mean, the real secret is his covenant relationship with God that's symbolized by his Nazarite vow and by his hair. And so you find the guys, look, you hate me, right? Like, fine, fine, it's my hair. They cut my hair, I'll have no strength. And obviously they cut his hair and he has no strength. They put his eyes out. It's, it's kind of terrible. They make him, um, you know grind in the prison house, they, they put him to work, um, grinding grain for them and whatever, which, by the way, has the effect of, would have the effect of building his strength again. So that's maybe not the, the best the thing best for them to have done. <laughs> but then they have this whole thing, they have this great big feast where they're going to show off their prize, Samson. And of course, this is that famous thing with Samson of the Pillars. And I think it's really compelling um, for the first time in Samson's life. Here he is, he's blind, he's broken his covenant, Everything's there. They're all there. They're making sport of him. In verse 28, and then Samson called unto the Lord, unto Jehovah, and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, that I may be avenged. Again, still for himself a little bit there, uh, for these two eyes. Then he takes hold of the pillars, and he pulls the house down. Um, taking himself, and it says um, over 3,000 um, Philistines with him. And he, said, he actually says he killed more then than he had his entire um, life there. But for me, part of the reason, I mean, Samson's kind of a piece of work. He's kind of terrible in a lot of ways. But it's very compelling to me that even Samson, at his moment of extremity, calls on God, and God listens to him. I love that. God listens to Samson's requests. It's a good reminder to me that sometimes as we're caught in this cycle here, 
and we feel like, you know, we're all day down here, and God listens to us. When we call, God's going to listen. Even if the reason we were here was our fault, God still loves us and will still listen to us. God still loved and had called Samson and listened to his prayer. And that's powerful stuff, brothers and sisters. So there's some stories at the end of Judges where the editors moved out of their original historical context to make his, they're kind of terrible stories, to make his point about why and how Israel needs a king. Their stories are designed to say, this is how bad it gets when we don't have any guidance. And, and to, to, to that point, if you look at chapter 17, which is right after Samson's death, look at verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. But every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And then that exact phrase gets repeated at the very end. So it becomes this inclusio, this, this bookend definition, if you will, of, look, Israel, you need a king. You need somebody with, with power and authority to make things right so that everybody's not just doing their own thing. Which, of course, leads right into 1 Samuel, which where Samuel is priest, prophet, judge, and the transitional figure between the judges and between the, um, the Israelite kingship. So it's interesting, these questions about who is to lead Israel, these questions, who's the ruler, who's the king, we see it throughout scriptures, throughout the Book of Mormon, throughout human history. If you take a very Western, American-centered, U.S.-centered example, the United States wanted to throw off kingship, right? So there have been kingship all these years. So here, Book of Judges say, we need a king. Well, United States citizens, before they were the U.S., said, we actually don't want kings anymore because too many kings are just following their own whims. And we actually all want to agree upon laws that we think are good and just and all be bound to those. We want to be ruled by laws and not just by one single king. And that was a decision that the United States made, and many other nations have gone away from kingship or the rule of one person and gone towards the rule of everybody under a specific set of laws that we've all publicly agreed to. So it's interesting how these texts are grappling with who do we follow? What laws do we follow? And it's interesting how the book concludes. A very powerful call that still matters today. Yeah, so, so to end where we began, we come full circle. It fits. In those days, there was no king in Israel. I would say, in our days, there is a king in Israel. Who makes law. Who makes, he's the author and the finisher of our law and our faith and our, and our progression. And the God of heaven is our king. So we don't have to follow the second half of that statement. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now we can turn heavenward, seek to hear him, to hearken to him, to obey, to worship, and to, to have our whole focus be on him and what he would have us do. We don't need to keep living in this, this vicious cycle, this destructive cycle. We can break out of it only with the help of the heavenly king who who has, has invited us all to come unto him, and denieth none that come unto him. So one of the, again, I love, I love that we have a God, one who gives us so much grace, so much love, so much law. I love that we have a God who tells a story, again, the way the Bible tells the story of these people, 
they're trying. They're not doing it. They're trying. And God again and again and again says, it's okay. Let me help you again. And they do it again. And God says, it's okay. Let me help you again. And for myself, that's kind of the story of my life. I feel like I'm caught sometimes um, in bondage now or whatever. And God again and again, he says to me, he says, Avram, it's okay. Let's try this again. And I have a firm testimony. Again, I, we believe, I have a firm testimony of a God who will always say to us, okay, let's try this again. I love that perspective, Avram. That God who was so merciful and long-suffering and so grace-filled with these people in antiquity is in his heavens today looking at you and me saying, it's okay, let's try this again. Know that he lives and know that he loves you. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.